and welcome to my show. Today, I'm excited to host Lee Bressler, who is the author and host of The Lee Show. A twice weekly- Hello, and welcome to my show. Today, I'm excited to host Lee Bressler, who is the author and host of The Lee Show, a twice weekly podcast. Lee's professional experience of working for 17 years in finance and technology has trained him to consume vast amounts of information and synthesize it into conclusions that others rarely spot. His opinions are carefully researched and considered, though Lee often makes them sound like they were formed off the cuff. In addition to his work on the podcast, Lee is the Vice President of Sales for Data Numbers. They're a leader in the machine learning and augmented intelligence space. Before joining Data Nomers, Lee spent 17 years working within finance and technology, including serving as the head of the U.S. capital markets industry practice within Microsoft. Although he spent nearly two decades in finance and tech, Lee's true passion lies within podcasting and entertainment. Each individual episode of The Lee Show covers two serious topics and two personal stories. The serious and personal topics are interwoven to create a very natural flow from one area to the next. I recently had the opportunity to be on Lee's show, and I'm happy to share that podcast link with those who are interested. Enjoy Lee Bressler on the Rebecca Panapinto Project. Lee, how's it going? Good. Thanks for having me here, Rebecca. Yeah, so excited to have you. been listening to your show for a while now, and excited to show a little glimpse of that on my show here today. So thanks for joining. Thanks. Thanks. I'm glad you're a listener. It's nice to have uh, loyal listeners and to connect with everybody. Love it. Well, let's chat a little bit about your background first, because we met through the tech community and you really have focused most of your career within the financial services space. So let's start there chatting just a little bit about your perspective of digital transformation within fintech and where you see that going over the next three, four, five years. Sure. So I spent the majority of my career working in financial services. I, uh, I started as an investment banker. I worked at JP Morgan doing investment banking for banks and other financial institutions and made this transition to go work in private equity. It was like a very standard thing. Two years of investment banking, two years of private equity. Uh, I worked for an amazing private equity firm, loved what I was doing, swore I was going to do private equity for my entire career and uh, applied to business school uh, on the premise that I was only going to look at business schools that had a lot of job placement in private equity. Uh, I went to Wharton, got my MBA, and I got swept up in this craze. There were probably 50 guys in my class at Wharton who had the same background as me, and we all swore that we were going to go work in private equity forever. And then there was just this like mania of you have to go work at a hedge fund. It's so exciting. It's so dynamic. You got to go do it. It's entrepreneurial. And it's all... Bullshit. I mean, it's the dumbest job. I spend almost a decade doing it. And I just kept thinking like, this is my job. I got to keep doing this. And I worked for uh, a hedge fund where my boss got laid off. And then I had this like panic, like got to go find a new job. And uh, I just kept doing it thinking I should keep doing it. And I hated it. Um, it's, It's for reasons that we could spend an entire podcast talking about the evolution of stock picking and why it has, has changed over time. Uh, the thing that I liked the most was uh, fundraising, which is really sales by another name. And uh, you know, you're selling yourself and your firm, but that's, that's what it is. And I loved the, you know, sitting there and thinking of ideas. I didn't like the idea of like trading stocks all day, but I loved just sitting there and thinking of ideas and how, 
things are changing in the world, how the world is transforming. I've always been very passionate about tech and about understanding change in the world. And um, ultimately, I tried to start my own hedge fund. It did not work out. And uh, I said, I'm not doing this anymore. Like, I'm just done with this. And I went to go work in tech. I had lunch with a guy who worked at Microsoft. And he said, you know, we have the perfect job for you. And the context for that role was Microsoft has 500 or so salespeople just focused on enterprise financial services. So we're talking like Goldman Sachs, BlackRock, JP Morgan's of the world, the huge financial services company, 500 salespeople, which first of all, just like objectively, that's an enormous number of salespeople. And of those 500, almost none of them have ever worked in financial services before. And so you just have these very weird moments where you have people who are going, they, they, they think that an investment bank is a bank branch that sells investments. And they think, I'll, I'll give you an example. We had a uh, sales guy covering one of the largest asset management firms in the country. And he got a meeting with the CEO of this firm. And he didn't bother to ask me, what is asset management? He didn't Google what is asset management. He assumed that asset management meant keeping track of like your laptops and printers and desk chairs and stuff like that. And he went into this meeting and started talking about this stuff. And the CEO is like, I don't know what's happening here. And once you do that, you have, you, you've shredded the trust in the relationship. And Microsoft is a business whose reputation is entirely built on trust. And so my role and, and, and what I really sought to do was one was, was teach and inform and, and make sure that I could take my background of working in financial services and explain to folks who were doing tech sales full-time, how do they speak the language of their customers? And sometimes they could do that. Sometimes they would say, Lee, we need you to come in and have that conversation. Because when you're talking to uh, Morgan Stanley or something, they, they want somebody who knows that you, you understand what they're doing. So that was really the, the context of how I got into tech. Um, I lead the sales practice for a machine learning company called Datanomers now. Uh, Datanomers is a really cool machine learning and artificial intelligence company. Uh, they, they actually prefer, instead of artificial intelligence, we say augmented intelligence. It's really about using data to augment uh, uh, the, the, the intelligence that humans bring to a process and to decision making. And we can talk a lot about that later. So, um, you know, that's, that's sort of my journey to moving into digital transformation in, in financial services and, and uh, you know, happy to talk about the future of that as well. Yeah, I would love to dive into that here in a moment. I first want to rewind just a little bit because it really caught me with what you thought you should do versus what you wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And like spending 10 years being like, check this box, do this. This is what you're supposed to do, but you weren't finding fulfillment in that. And from what I can understand, where you are in tech now is a lot more fulfilling. So how is that internal transition of going from, you know, I'm not happy. How do I pursue finding happiness at my work? It's a good question. Uh, look, there was a part of me that was like, I have kids and I just like need, this is my job. I got to keep doing this. Although, by the way, it, working at a hedge fund 
it's sort of a lottery ticket, like one in 500 people is getting fabulously wealthy doing it. And then in your head, you're always like, wow, if I could just be like that guy, I'd be super rich. But most people aren't. And so it's not like it's some surefire path to riches. And, and so it wasn't like it was so lucrative uh, as a career, but I just, you know, in my head, I thought this is what I need to keep doing. I had this sort of twisted perception of prestige. And I thought like working at a hedge fund is prestigious and I went to Wharton. So I need to have this prestigious job. It's, it's nonsense. It's, it's all a made up thing. And it's entirely a narrative that was in my head. Uh, you know, prestige is, is, is something that you create. It's a social construct and it just comes from being successful and from being intelligent and being a, a good person that people want to be around. Like I, I, I just, I don't, I don't buy that anymore. And it took time to disconnect from that. It took failure to disconnect from that. Right. Like I had to fail multiple times, sometimes in really dramatic ways to go, I, this is not for me anymore. Like, and you know, I, uh, I've been sober for 21 years and, uh, in, in Alcoholics Anonymous, one of the things that I've heard people say that always stuck with me is the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And I just kept doing that, right? Like I worked at a hedge fund. It didn't work. I went to go work at another hedge fund. It didn't work. And another one. And it's just like, at what point is that just insanity? So there was this sort of, and, and look, it, it took failure. And then I just went, okay, this is not for me anymore. I'm not going to keep trying this. Yeah, no, that's good. And it's not like tech and financial services was really a risky move. It was a mental block no. that you just had to fight through. It, it's, it's a mental block. It's a different thing. Like, so, you know, when I worked in investment banking, the hours were brutal. I was working like 16 hours a day for a couple of years. And it creates this, it sets the bar in a certain way. Private equity was much the same where like everyone had worked in banking previously. Everyone had the same mentality, like a normal workday is 12 to 16 hours, six or seven days a week. And so then when I moved into tech where people would come in, it was like a normal job. Like people come in at nine and they leave at five and they don't always check their email in the evening. And they, you know, they're like, I'm going to be out of office next week. And you're just like, I don't know. Okay. But you have, you have an iPhone. Like why, what, what's the obstacle here? That shift was a tricky one for me. It was a tricky one in the way I related to my colleagues. It was a tricky one for me personally. Uh, I think I went into it expecting everyone to still have that same sort of investment banker mentality, and they didn't. And that uh, that was a little bit hard for me. Like, I, I think I probably rubbed people the wrong way for a bit because I had these expectations. Like, what do you mean it's the weekend? Just like reply to the email. Why is this difficult? Mm. So I, I think that was a little bit of a tricky part of the transition. It wasn't, it didn't feel risky really beyond that personal experience though. Yeah, no, that's good. Sounds like a great growth and learning experience. 
It was. It definitely was. Uh, I look. I, you know, I've I've been kind of a, a journeyman throughout my career, and have worked at a bunch of different places in a variety of different industries. You know, I'd love some more stability to it, but on the other hand, I think I've learned from each of those experiences and tried to internalize it, tried to grow from it. I think it's helped to make me better at what I do now. It's helped to, because I understand, I can put myself in the shoes of all the different sort of personas that I've worked with. And so if I'm helping a hedge fund with their digital transformation journey, I understand what they're going through. I know day to day, what is the portfolio manager and the analyst and the chief operating officer. I know what they are going through because I've done that. If I'm working with a private equity firm, I know that it's, it's not even just speaking their language. It's, it's like a true form of empathy because I've experienced it myself and I know what their needs are. It's even helped to inform our, uh, our sort of like product development at Datanomers. Like we've built okay. tooling and specific products targeted at, we don't just say financial services. That's a, that's a, a generic catch-all that doesn't mean anything. We don't even just say capital markets because that's also a generic cap, uh, catch-all that doesn't mean anything. We, we target things more specifically. We'll say, here is a product that is built for a fundamental equity portfolio manager. Here's a product that is meant for a uh, quant analyst. Like we, we target our products specifically and then are able to better find a market and, a, and a, a, um, they get a better reception in, in the marketplace. That's good. So back on the topic of, I'm going to still call it financial services because that's what I'm comfortable with. Sure. But uh, we were talking you know, previously, especially when we were collaborating more closely about how everybody kind of wants to be the big dog in that space. They kind of want to run their own show. Some of them to not be named, want to build their own cloud. But you have an interesting perspective that like, maybe even collaboration amongst these groups could further digital transformation. Can you draw that comparison and kind of what's helped you come to that conclusion? Yeah. So one of the trends that I've noticed a lot is this move towards industry standards and to building industry consortia, consortia, consortiums. I, I don't know what the right plural is there. Um, and the idea is why should five different competitors build five different systems, five different standards for their technology when instead they could come together and build one that everyone can agree on? they can make one that is an industry standard. And so I've seen that as a trend. Uh, there, the idea sort of started to, to, to uh, form in my head when I met with a firm that was a, a very large uh, player in the commodity trading space. And what they talked about was how they imagine the scenario, you grow coffee beans in Ethiopia and you then need to get the coffee beans. Think about the logistics involved. The farmer grows them. A buyer has to come along and say, yes, these are grade, whatever. I'm willing to pay you X number of dollars a bushel for them. Mm -hmm. He has to buy them. He has to, that, that, that buyer has to get them then to a train 
the train has to get them to a port. At the port, you need the customs inspector, the health inspector. They all need to inspect it, stamp their approval on something. Then you need to choose a boat. You need to choose an insurance company. You get them onto the boat. You ship them, let's say, to China. And then you do the exact same thing in reverse, right? You have the inspectors in China. You need to get through customs in China, get them onto a train, get them shipped to wherever they're going. There's a huge number of logistics steps involved in that process. And uh, if you think about it, if there are 10 different commodity trading firms that are trying to build a system to digitize those, the paperwork and the, the aut automate the workflows there as much as possible, then why should they have 10 different systems? What if they just create an industry standard? And so that was something that, that we worked very closely on uh, at Microsoft was helping this industry and many others that we did similar projects with to build a sort of industry consortium, which you can structure either as a not-for-profit entity or as a for-profit company. And then you say, okay, everybody buys into that company and then that company goes and sets industry rules, standards. They're the ones creating the actual technology. And they have a commitment from each of the players in that industry that they're going to adopt that technology and help fund its development. In practice, what it means is like, if it's going to cost $100 million to build a system, why do that six times? Why not just do that once and share the cost around? And so Look, there, there's tricky things you need to manage with that, right? What happens when someone new wants to join the consortium? How do you charge them to buy into this when everyone else has already paid their fair share to develop something? But in it, these are solvable questions, and we're seeing this happen more and more, this push to, to achieve industry standards through digitization. The blockchain is a concept underpinning a good amount of that, you, you know, a lot of these industry standard systems are built around a sort of corporate Ethereum uh, blockchain where you're, you're creating like a private Ethereum uh, um, chain and then using that as a system of record. Because of course, when you have a whole bunch of companies in the same industry that are communicating with each other, that are talking with each other, you need them to make sure that there's trust, right? Naturally competitors, might not trust each other. The other issue you need to solve is the making sure that there's no perception of collusion, right? When you have six different competitors in the same room with each other, you better believe the antitrust regulators are gonna go, what's going on here? That's a little fishy. So have lawyers in the rooms, record meetings, do everything in a, in, over email. Building as much trust as you can in that system is, is absolutely essential. That's good. I like it, but yeah, it in practice is a lot harder <laughs> to really see consistently in that competitive of an industry specifically. I think you, you can build a business just on the, uh, on building the ideas here, like thinking about different industries and then just the envisioning piece of this is worth a lot of money and it's worth a, it, it's a valuable aspect of this. So just sitting there and thinking about like, what is the, how could I build an industry standard for, you know, real estate? How could I build an industry standard for like, you just start thinking through different industries, getting as granular as possible. And I think you can, you can really build a, a practice around that. 
Yeah. Oh, I agree. And you mentioned blockchain, but also what came to mind was crypto and how all these financial groups are going to be forced to at some point adopt it and manage it and the ecosystem that they're going to interface with it, I think is all up for disruption and innovation right now. And it's whether or not they're going to try and just go at each other's necks or find ways to collaborate, which you see some folks already doing, folks like PayPal and Venmo, for example. They're realizing it's better in groups, but not everybody has that same perspective. So it'll be interesting to see as crypto rages more and more throughout the U.S. and the world, how they all decide to kind of put their own spin on it and respond to it and stay competitive. I mean, I think you'll see, uh, and I'm speculating here, but I think you'll see new entrance that displaced the legacy participants that uh, just because you were a really big firm in, in uh, the space 20 years ago or 30 years ago, and you have a big brand, it does not mean that you'll be successful in the future necessarily. And I think it's a lot of it is going to come down to CEOs who try to defend what they have and they're afraid to cannibalize their existing business. And it often takes a new CEO who's not tied to that, who's willing to do it. And look, you've seen that in tech as well, right? When Steve Ballmer knew that for Microsoft, the, the crux of the business, the, the cash cow was Windows and everything was built to protect Windows. And then Satya Nadella took over as CEO of Microsoft in 2013. And he did something that, that it seems organizational, but it was very material. He made Windows a subsidiary of a division. Like it wasn't, the company used to report Windows and Office and everything else. That was how the company reported its, its financials. And then he made Windows just like one product under a broader division. And it sent the signal we don't have to do everything to protect Windows. And instead, Microsoft has pivoted to become this huge and successful cloud company now. It could not have done that if the entire business was about protecting Windows. Look, I mean, it took for, for Apple to be able to say, we're not going to make the entire business about the Macintosh and we're going to open up the ecosystem. Just opening... For, for Apple, when they created iTunes for Windows, that was a huge, huge strategic move. And it took Steve Jobs to be able to do that, right? The, the old Apple would never have done that because it was viewed as like cannibalizing their own business. And so I think you'll see the same thing with financial services firms and their leadership that I think you'll see that the CEOs of these companies are going, some of them are going to be willing to adapt and some of them are very much not going to be willing to do that. Yeah. And they'll likely be the ones left behind. So those are great comparisons to draw. Um, You're so right. Sometimes it takes like getting a little less emotional about certain parts of the business (laughs) to realize like windows is an entity and be able to separate the, you know, weird, just fondness for this product that you think is your baby and realize like how it fits in the greater ecosystem of business and where everything is driving towards now. Cause it changes. I mean, overnight technology mm-hmm. changes and your users are fickle and they have something new that comes on the market, but you gotta be ready to pivot and not just protect what you have or else 
it's going to be- your Kodak, right? Kodak did yeah. that. Kodak was unwilling to pivot to digital because they did not want to disrupt their film business. And what's Kodak now? It's, it's nothing. I don't even know if it still exists. I mean, like it, mm. it was one of the great American businesses and it's a nothing now because they were unwilling to risk cannibalizing themselves. Yeah, no, that's a great perspective. Let's talk about data numbers a little bit now and how you guys are doing this. You said augmented intelligence versus artificial yeah. intelligence. What does that mean to you? So, so Datanomers has built a platform called EasyML. And the idea behind EasyML is to make machine learning accessible to anyone. You don't need programming knowledge. It is a no-code solution that you can use to draw insights from your data that you otherwise would not be able to draw in a very easy way. And, um, and then to use that to predict the future, right? It, the insights are only valuable if it helps you to predict the future. The insights, drawing the insights helps you figure out what questions to be asking and, and how you should be planning out your strategy. And it's a very flexible platform for doing that. It's a really nifty product and it's a nifty company. Um, you know, Datanomers was spun out of a, um, a larger tech firm a few years ago called IPsoft. Uh, and we've got incredible uh, leadership. We've got incredible programmers and, and engineering talent. And, uh, and there's just a ton of innovation going on. And so... You know, it, it, the EasyML platform can be used on any set of data. It's totally agnostic to the industry. Everything, we, we've, we've deployed it in healthcare settings, in uh, looking at credit cards and doing fraud detection, uh, looking at, um, at, at hedge funds uh, and trying to find um, discrepancies in financial models. Um, I mean, it's been in a variety of, in telecom, looking at uh, call data and trying to detect fraud in call data and trying to detect suspicious activity in, in telephone call data. There, there's a huge um, you know, area in which this can be deployed. And so we've really built some very cool technology for, uh, for doing that. That's awesome. And have you verticalized pretty heavily so far, or are you still able to serve broad? Just data? We're able to serve broad uh, sections of, of the world, um, mm -hmm. you know, because it's, it's a platform that can do that. And, and really the idea of augmented intelligence is we can't, you can, as a person sit there and try to crunch through your data, you can try to find regressions, you can try to find correlations in your data, you can try to spot things. We can do it faster and much more easily than you can by far. So that's the first piece of it. The second piece of it is uh, we want to help you figure out what to be querying of your data. You might not even know the questions to ask. And that's a big part of what we do is help you figure out what are the questions to ask? Where should you be focusing your time and attention? That's good. That's actually the consistent story I hear with a lot of folks who play with data and are out there helping companies really get a grasp on how they leverage their own. Is It doesn't necessarily matter the vertical. Data is data, but bringing another level 
to help people understand what the data is telling them and mm-hmm. again, ask those questions that they're not asking, that's the game changer to being able to have insights beyond just looking at all of this data that you have served up to you. And you're able to then, you know, I think be cross industry of having these different groups understand even each other better by having a really good clear picture of predicting the future and their strategies and what's going to happen in the market based on looking at the past and where things have been. Absolutely. Look, I'm a big believer in general that one of the most valuable skills you can have is just being able to predict the future with a higher degree of accuracy than the next person can. I'm a big believer that the way that you build out that muscle is by understanding the past. And by understanding people, like people are, are the same as they were 500 years ago, right? Like Shakespeare wrote about all the, the sort of core emotions of greed and lust and jealousy and anger. And uh, those haven't changed. I mean, that's, that's still the same stuff now. And so the more you understand people, the more you're going to be able to understand what people are going to do. And you're going to be able to predict them, predict the future. And, and really like that's, what skill is more valuable than that? Um, now, when you can turn that into data, you can turn that into math, and you start thinking about the concept of Bayesian reasoning. Have you ever studied the concept of Bayesian reasoning? So yeah. there was a mathematician and philosopher in the 1700s, uh, and the principles he developed were about how do you were focused on how do you interpret new data? If you have, uh, if you've done the same thing a hundred times, you throw a ball in the air a hundred times and every time the ball comes down and then the hundred and first time you throw a ball in the air and it just hovers there. How do you interpret that? Does that mean that you should throw away the first hundred times and assume that that the laws of physics no longer exist. And this is just what happens. Now you throw a ball in the air and it's always going to stay there. Do you ignore the most recent data point and only pay attention to the first hundred times? And how do you weight new data that doesn't conform to your prior assumptions, right? Your prior assumption was you throw a ball in the air, it's going to fall down. Now you have new data that conflicts with that. How do you weight that? And I think, first of all, I just, I think that's a skill that, that, most people need to develop, but it's a really important thing. And it's something, you know, you asked me, what is my podcast about? That's a theme that we explore a lot on my podcast is how do you find patterns in the past that have changed, that have permanently changed, where when that 101st data point is the new normal and the right thing to do is to completely discard that past relationship. That's no longer predictive of the future. And and so to me, understanding that, being able to formalize it in a piece of software, but also to formalize it in your brain, I you know, I think that's that's really the the most valuable skill that you can develop. And and that's a lot of what data nomers is doing. Good. It makes me think of too like an Uber, Uber Eats, I love my uh, aura ring here, how these companies that have maybe something physical or are just really a services company, but you add the data that they have on top of it and their valuation is through the roof. Now this can predict when I'm getting sick 
Uber Eats and Uber know where I go and what I do at what time. And like, even, I mean, scary enough, they know my favorite restaurant in Hoboken. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Whether or not I really want somebody to be able to, you know, throw me an ad to buy that more than I need to or not, they have that data. So that just amplifies the valuations of their company and what they're able to do in the market beyond just get me from point A to point B. Look, I I think for a long time, there was this whole tranche of uh, of startups, mostly consumer-focused businesses, that seemed like they were just burning money, that there was some benevolent venture capitalist who was like, oh, you want grocery delivery? We'll do that for you totally for free. You're going to buy $30 worth of groceries. We're going to charge you $15 for it, and we're going to deliver them to you for free. And so then you'd go and do that, right? You, of course, I'm going to order groceries from that company. Why should I bother going to the grocery store? They're going to do all this for free. And there was always this vision of like, this has got to end, right? At some point, people are going to stop doing it. But if you actually think about the economics of that, in a way, it made sense. Because what was happening was that venture capitalist was losing, let, let's oversimplify it. They're losing $15 every time you do this to create revenue. And then these businesses were being valued on outrageous multiples of revenue. And so for a venture capitalist, at a relatively early stage, it made sense to turn your capital into revenue. That's essentially what you were doing. You were subsidizing revenue by burning equity. But it made sense because the businesses were being valued on a multiple of revenue and then you could sell it to the next fool who would be willing to buy this company and say, oh yeah, I'll pay 20 times revenue for this. This makes sense. And it was worth it to you to do it then. I think to some extent that model has, right? It was, people assumed it was like, oh, they're just going to keep doing this until like it becomes an indispensable product or service for us. And then we're just going to, you know, they're going to start charging people. But I think, you know, that once you start charging people, a lot of them go, I don't really need this anymore. Maybe I can just go back to the old way. So we'll see which of those survive. But um, anyways, I I think that was a a big part of a lot of those business models. Yeah, no, that's interesting. So yeah, let's talk about your show now. You've had this podcast for a little over a year now. I think you kind of were COVID inspired, (laughs) similar to me. So what's the vision for that? And where are you guys looking to take a lot of your content over the next 12 months? Yeah. So I've had people for a couple of years who have been saying you should have a podcast. And the genesis behind it was I'd go out to lunch with someone. I'd go to dinner with someone and I'd say something and they'd go, you're insane. You sound like a a conspiracy theorist or something like you're, you're off your rocker. And then six months later, they'd call me back and be like, holy smokes, you were right about whatever crazy thing I mocked you for. Uh, I wish there was like a platform where you could share these ideas and, and where you could build like a track record of these ideas. And so I heard that a lot of times and eventually like it, it starts to build up and you start going, maybe I should do this. And, um, and so I did it eventually. It, I was very apprehensive about it, but I did it eventually. I started with a live show on Clubhouse, uh, which started in, we started doing the show in March, I think. It was me and, uh, and one of my friends from grad school. 
uh, Dave, we still do the show together. We've moved from Clubhouse to a different platform called Colin. Uh, so we started doing that every Thursday night, 9 p.m. Eastern. We'd talk for an hour and change, and uh, we covered a lot of topics. And then in the middle of 2021, I said, you know what? I want to start building out a, a recorded version of this as well. And so I started doing that as a podcast. I've had guests a few times. It's mostly me just like howling at the moon and, uh, and doing it on my own. The audience is growing. Uh, it's a lot of fun doing it. I find... So, you know, the, the first few episodes that I did, I would just like write five bullet points in front of myself and, and, you know, put them up on a screen. And then I would just, you know, go at it for a while. And then I started to write more detailed outlines for myself. And I found that they were much better received, that the content was better. It's not scripted, but like I had, I had just thought through what I wanted to say a lot more than I had initially. And, uh, and I think that was, that was successful. So uh, I've published episode 32 uh, last week. Um, and it's, uh, I've got subscribers, um, you know, at leebrestler.substack.com slash subscribe. Uh, I've got subscribers. I love doing it and they love the content. So I'm going to keep on doing it. I, I published the written like transcripts of the shows and the audio. It's always interesting to me. I, I, I think in general, older people tend to prefer the written format and younger people tend to prefer the audio format. I'm indifferent which one people want to listen to or read. Uh, and I'm just going to keep on doing both and, and building out the audience for it. I love it. I'm, I'll share links for people to be able to take a listen and subscribe as well. Great. I want to definitely share that with this audience here too. Another piece, because this I feel like fits it in kind of your, your personal life, your side hustle, is you're like an avid marathon runner, fitness freak, um, but not necessarily because you're trying to win awards more, I think, because it's good for just your mental health and clarity and helps you be successful yeah. overall in your day to day. So tell us about that and what you're looking to do with your fitness. Sure. Uh, so I've always been a total meathead. Like I like going to the gym and all the things you're not supposed to do in the gym, like tossing your dumbbells and grunting. And oh I do all of those things. I'll put all of my junk down on a bench and treat it like my coffee table. And then when people are like, are you using this? I'm like, yeah, obviously. I mean, I'm, I'm really a, a total dick in the gym, but uh, I love, I love going to the gym. I love, you know, just old school, you know, banging weights around and, and heavy stuff. And then uh, in, in quarantine at the beginning of COVID, I couldn't do that anymore there. I couldn't go to the gym anymore. And it was really annoying to me. And I always hated running. I would run like a half mile and I'd start hooting and hollering and complaining about it. and be like, I can't go on. Oh, just go without me. Like it was just, I, I was useless. Um, then I had nothing else to do. So I started running and uh, I've got one of those Peloton treadmills. Yeah. I love it. It's an amazing product, both because the classes are incredible and, because a treadmill with slats is far better than a treadmill with a belt. 
And, uh, and so I just started using it and I would run three miles, four miles, whatever. I would just do the, the running classes and I liked doing it. I realized um, this was an important thing for me. Do you remember taking like an intro to psych class and learning about the fight or flight response that, you know, you, you, there's like a mugger who's threatening you and you can like, your, your body has this response to it or a bear or whatever. So when you run, your body has a similar response somewhere around a half mile to a mile. You, you hit this sort of wall and your choices are like, Oh, I can't go on. Or you just push through it. And a lot of people, you ask them, you're like, you know, do you want to go for a run? They're like, Oh, I couldn't run a mile. But like, of course they could. They just, they hit that fight or flight response. And for so many people, the response is flight. And that's what it used to be for me too. And it took a lot of running until I realized, Oh, I can just cruise right through this and keep on going. So I've done that. And I really like doing it. Uh, I've done two marathons. Both of them were the virtual New York City marathon, which is like really a weird thing to do because you're just, you pick your own course, you track it on an app, you carry your phone with you and you run 26.2 on your own. And let me tell you, like running for four hours by yourself is like that. I mean, only a freak does that. Uh, so I've done that a couple of times. I'm signed up to do the uh, in-person New York City Marathon next year. I've done a bunch of half marathons. I like that distance more. It's like a little more civilized than the full marathons are. So I'm, I'm a big fan of those. That's, I think that's sort of like my sweet spot is somewhere between, call it like eight and 13 miles. And uh, I'm, I'm digging it. I can go back to the gym now and I'm doing that somewhat, but you know, it's hard. Like you get into this routine of just running and then it's like, Oh God, I got a bench press today. Uh, do I really want to do that? So I, it used to be the opposite, right? All I wanted to do was like get in the gym and not hit the treadmill. So uh, I'm, I'm digging it right now and, and I'm going to keep on doing it. That's awesome. No, the runner's high is a very real thing. I have experienced it myself. And I mean, they say the key to success is learning how to do things that are boring because in the boredom and the routine is how you build really good habits to help you go to the next level. So I think now that you've done it and it's routine and it's normal for you, yeah, you could get up and run a half marathon every morning and not even think about it, but then what it's doing, I'm sure for your mental clarity and just forget the longevity of your health and lifestyle is going to be really rewarding in the next five, 10 years. So I commend Hope you for so. that. I think that's awesome. And if you ever need a partner. Thank you. Yeah. Let's go for a jog together for sure. Sounds good. Yeah. So the last thing I want to ask you is around principles. Mm -hmm. And I ask a lot of my guests this, and it's very interesting to see the range of different answers. So specifically from you, I want to hear what is a core principle that you live by to be successful in business? So I'll build on something. I'm going to, I'm going to answer that in two ways. And I'll build on something I started with earlier when I talked about uh, understanding people. I think that the most important thing is to understand people, especially as a, as a salesperson, that's really what I need to do, right? I'm interacting with people and my approach to understanding people, this is going to sound a little weird, but it's, to me, it's all about reading and understanding the past. Um, I never read business books. I never read nonfiction. I think it's all junk at best. You can, get the concept from like a book jacket or something. Uh, instead, 
I read old fiction. So you'll find me curled up with uh, the Count of Monte Cristo or Anna Karenina or Les Miserables or something. I, I think those authors understood people better than anyone else did. Their characters were real, right? If you watch a movie these days, the characters don't, they don't have realism to them. There's always like some just in time superhero type stuff, save the day. That's not realistic. That, that may make for a dramatic story, but it's not realistic. But you read War and Peace and there's a realism to it. And so when you understand those characters, I think you understand people. And when you understand people, you get what they're going to do. And to me, you know, as a salesperson, I, I had a professor in business school named Justin Wolfers. Mm-hmm. And he said something that, that stood out for me. He said, uh, lobbying is education. And what he meant by that is, if you're going to, this was in a business and public policy class, and he said, lobbying is education. And you know, if you want to lobby that you want some politician to go do a thing, you want them to approve a policy or, or encourage a policy, you have to teach them why that's a good idea. If you teach them why that's a good idea, if your argument is credible, they're going to agree with you and then they'll buy into it and then they'll go do that thing. Sales is the same thing. Sales is education. And it's about understanding the people that you're speaking to, empathizing with them, and then being able to educate them on why this is good. The sale happens almost as, a, as an afterthought. It happens automatically if you can show someone the value of your product. And so to me, you know, what I'm a big believer in is reading and understanding people and trying to empathize with them, not making some heavy handed sale. I don't think that works really well. So, uh, you know, to me, my principle is constantly be reading, be learning, be thinking. Uh, my reading list is, is weird and varied. I read The Economist cover to cover every week. I read uh, the New York Review of Books. I read a ton of fiction, as I mentioned. Uh, I read, there are some substacks that I really enjoy. Stratechery by Ben Thompson, Freddie DeBoer, Matt Taibbi. I think they write amazing stuff. And so I just try to take all of that and there's like a mental model you just have to, to put it into and, and try to build out, you know, your, your understanding of people. So that's the, the principle that I live by. That's awesome. Well, Lee, this has been a pleasure. I so enjoyed our time together. I did as well. Thanks for having me here today. And, uh, you know, looking forward to uh, going for a run together. Sounds good. We'll see you again soon. Okay, great.